When I went to Leeds, they told me that within three years, the club had an 84% chance of being relegated. I'm listening to it with you now, saying that we didn't get what we got from these games, we didn't get what we deserved. I'm a firm believer in life, because I'm a realist, right? You get what you fucking deserve. There's something in English culture about that negative, edgy, cutting, like, th like that's the truth. And there's also a culture in this country, in England, of envy, rather than admire that's people. That's sad. I think it's sad, and I think it's- And it's pathetic. This is up front with me, Simon Jordan. I believe there are a lot of vacuous, uninformed, unchallenged opinions out there. I want to get to the bottom line and cut through the nonsense. So with this podcast with William Hill, I'm going to get people with strong views who think they can stand them up to proper scrutiny. There's a good chance I might learn something along the way. And more importantly, so might you. Joining me in today's episode, a manager who moved from the MLS into football's Red Bull model. After spells in Austria and Germany, he landed most recently here in the Premier League at one of English football's most iconic clubs. It was a job that began in a positive fashion, keeping them in the Premier League before ending abruptly 12 months later. A rarity for English football, an American in the dugout. Jesse Marsh, welcome to Upfront. Thanks, Simon. Nice yeah. to see you. You too. I am, um, in my past, I lived in America and I played semi-professional football in, Where? in New York City. Okay. Um, in about 1989, 1990. And also, when I had Crystal Palace, we put a development side into the PDG, okay. uh, the second tier of uh, American professional football playing out of Annapolis. Okay. But also, in the 70s, because of American football becoming a feature, you saw the New York Cosmos. You saw the Fort Lauderdale Strikers or the Tampa Bay Rowdies. And we saw English talent, like one of the managers that managed for me, Trevor Francis, playing for the Detroit Express. So the 70s, and the reasons why I mentioned the 70s is because that's the time that you grew up in and that's where you discovered football. So with that backdrop, what was the interest and the motivation and then the thought process that leads you on the journey that you've gone to? So the NASL team that was closest to us was the Chicago Sting. Right. And I had been to a few matches there, but they were always playing in a different stadium. They were at Polo Grounds, they were at Wrigley Field, they were kind of all over the place. But that's not what originally got me interested. It was that I had a cousin that lived in the suburbs of Chicago, which was an hour from Racine, Wisconsin, where I grew up, okay. that had had me over at his house. And in the backyard, we started kicking a ball around. I went back home and I told my parents I was six and I was like, uh, I wanna I wanna play soccer. And and they had no idea how to facilitate that, where to where teams were. They didn't, they never played. And so they got me signed up at the local Y. Uh, one of the dads coached me, and then my my interest sparked from there. But but it was also part of sort of being an athletic an American. I just played right. sports. I liked playing basketball. I liked playing football. I liked playing American football, ice hockey from where we we're from. I just, if there was a sport and my buddies were playing, I was part of it. And then naturally as time went on, football, our football became uh, more and more of an interest because I was just gifted at it. I was good at it and I loved it. So you took um, an interesting path education wise, didn't you? Because you had an opportunity, you got a full ride at Duke, right? But you wanted to go to Princeton, which is an Ivy League um, university. You know, you're mixing with the higher echelons of society by being in that environment, by being in an Ivy League environment. It's preparing you for ultimately some form of success, but yours was a, a sporting desire because you come out of that and you're going to be a professional football player, don't you? Yeah, there's a lot to think about and talk about in that. Mm. So I was a good student. I was, you know, I was naturally good at- What were you studying? 
when I went to Princeton, I studied pre-med and history and then later po public policy. Okay. And, um, but I was, I was a good student and I, and I liked school, you know, I liked, I liked to be good at, I liked to be smart. So when we had a test, I always wanted to have the best score in the class. I always, you know, this was part of my competitive will as well, as well, but, but I was, I was good at school and I liked it. And, but I never thought about going to Ivy Leagues because where I was from, nobody did that. That wasn't like Harvard was like sort of a word that mm -hmm. existed in the you movies, heard, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. not like in my hometown. Yale, Harvard, yeah, yeah. So yeah. when I when when the Princeton coach I heard was looking at me, I I thought to myself, where where is that? What is and that's that? Bob Bradley. Yes. yes, it was Bob Bradley at the time, and Bob Bradley told me years later that one of the reasons that I was able to get into Princeton was not just that no one from my high school that was like 40 years old had ever gone to Princeton from that school. No one had ever applied to the university. So then I, I realized I was like an outreach program. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. <laughs> but one of the things that I'm sort of built with is fearlessness, mm -hmm. right? So when I went to visit Princeton, I was like, this place is amazing. The mm -hmm. school is fantastic. The people seem great. And to me, I didn't even equate like how difficult the university would be. I thought, what a great opportunity, a chance for me to have an experience that was so different than anybody else. If I get in, I'm doing this. And and there's there's two sides of that. It's part naive, but it's also brave. Yeah. You know, but I think sometimes those two things go hand in hand. What you don't know doesn't frighten you sometimes, is yes. it? Yes. Yeah. I liked being in those situations. I liked trying to feel like, oh shit, I've got a lot of work to do. I've got to figure this out. And I'm, you know, I'm in over my head. Yeah. And and that's and and honestly, that was probably the first time that I really had to overcome massive adversity in terms of feeling like I was I I didn't belong mm -hmm. and I needed to prove myself. Bob Bradley, um, in in that mix. I mean, he was an influence for you both then and going forwards. I mean, what were your first experiences of him? So I heard the Princeton coach was interested in me. Mm -hmm. um, then I heard the name Bob Bradley. I had no idea who that was. I, we had a national team camp. I got that week, maybe a hundred letters from from universities that, that were interested in mm -hmm. me, all typed out on their letterhead. And one man wrote a letter, uh, hand, hand, wrote, yeah, hand yeah. wrote the letter and it was Bob. Yeah. And it was a it was a really meaningful letter, and I and again I thought Princeton, and it caught you know because I had heard that the Princeton coach, and mm -hmm. so I got back to him and I said I wanted to come visit, and we talked. He came, he picked me up at the airport. He was thirty one at the time, maybe young. Um, had a drove a crappy crappy car, was dressed in a tracksuit, and just talked about you know what the experience would be like of going to Princeton. He had gone to Princeton. He kind of grew up with a similar kind of background that I did. He was from New Jersey, but you know, a, a blue collar family is what mm -hmm. we call it in the US. And he he would say things to me like, you know, I can't really promise you anything other than a great education. And if you get in here, I, you know, I think you will open doors for yourself and you'll be able to have a window into a world that maybe you would never ever be able to see unless you you were able to do something like this. And, the, and he goes, and I'll try to make you a better player every day. And that's what I thought, drew me to him more than anything was this this no nonsense way of thinking about uh, you know what the experience could be um your pro career 14 years 23 what kind of player were you i was slow unathletic but technically good right clever yeah um intelligent and i was a competitor right maybe too much so 
-hmm. Like I, all I cared about was winning. Yeah. That was it. And I think that's what drove me to be successful. Again, I, I was another situation where I think I was in over my head. And even though I was good in college, when I stepped into the pro ranks, the players were much better than me, more sophisticated. Fitness was always something that I fell back on. Like I, I always tried to be the fittest player right. on the pitch. Yeah. And I knew that that was especially- that was controllable. Yeah. I, I start out as a striker because I okay. had finished my, my, my university career as a striker, scoring lots of goals. And I kind of started my professional career as a striker, but I knew my best position was going to be defensive midfield. So that's 96 or 2010, yeah? What was it like? What were the changes like in the quality? Because I, I, I've, I've looked at the MLS and obviously had a team out there, lower tier, and I, and I was not enamored with the quality. How much of a sea change did you see in the quality of the football? Actually, the first few years, there were fewer teams and, th and the quality of player was very high, right? So- Compare that to what? Give, that, give, give people a relativity. Well, my DC United know. team had almost a starting lineup of all national team players. So give me a comparison. Given what you now know about football, what would that look like? It would be a championship side, but- Really? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a good championship side. Again, this team had uh, uh, almost- Five starters from the U.S. national team, two starters from the Bolivian national team. You know, Jaime Moreno had just come from Middlesbrough and, and he had scored some goals there. He, but the reason he was available is because ultimately he was expendable for Middlesbrough, right? Mm -hmm. The football sophistication at that time and the tactical um, nuances of what yeah. the game was in the league and in our country, we're, we were still behind. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, let's go back to the, to the English football before the Premier League or, or right around the start of the Premier League. And this wasn't the, the the days of Pep Guardiola either. This was a lot of direct football, a lot of physical football. And yeah, the best teams were were mm. were nuanced, but a lot of the mid to lower tier teams were were the pitches weren't great. It was about fighting yeah. and second balls. Mm. So, you know, I'm not trying to I would say that the Liverpools and Nottingham Forest of the seventies and eighties might might, might be better that. than today. Yeah. Maybe. See, so yeah. that's so that's a little bit what I'm saying is like the, the initial stages of the league were actually quite good. Then, then all of a sudden you went through a period where the league was suffering and there were no fans and then, and then they contracted and then they started expanding. Yeah. And what's happened in MLS, frankly, is over time as we've expanded more and more and more, it's watered the talent pool down more and more and more, but it's given more opportunities to young Americans to become professionals. And I think it's also created a pathway for more young Americans to come to Europe. Overall, now where we're at, we're seeing progress. But then again, we're diluting the, 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 the talent pool every year. The best teams now, I still think are probably championship level teams. You talked about when you went to Princeton, being in over your head or, or finding the necessity to find, to adjust to the circumstances and raise your game. It's going to lead me straight into the Premier League and your arrival at Leeds. Did you feel that when you landed in the Premier League? There was a lot of things that I knew about what the experience was probably going to be before I came. Um, I watched Bob Bradley and mm -hmm. what he went through. Uh, I'd known enough players and I visited enough clubs over the, the 15 years prior to me arriving in Leeds to know what training environments are like, what stadium environments are like, what matches are like. The Premier League is no secret to anyone around the mm -hmm. world, but I had, I had special insight because of the people that I knew that were taking part in the league. Um, Did you think you'd earned the right to manage in the Premier League by that time? I didn't, that part, I didn't, you know, I don't know that you think about, do you earn the right or do you, it's always about what are the opportunities mm -hmm. and what is the connection 
-hmm. right? Because that's what I think about football in general is I I think uh, in a specific way about the way that the game should be played, right? And and everybody does, if you especially if you're a high level manager, and and you should, by the way. And so for me, it's always about finding the right kind of club, the right kind of leadership within a club yep. that has the right kind of player pool that can fit the kind of things that I think are valuable within the game. And so for me, leads fit a lot of those categories. Well, I was going to ask you because, I mean, the scale, I mean, did you get the scale and size of leads? Because for me, um, it's, a, it's one of the biggest, most iconic clubs, as I said in the intro, out of the Premier League for 16 years. Um, and every time, one of the few clubs that if I took Crystal Palace, a team I used to own up to play them, it was always one of those clubs that put your hairs on the back of your neck with the support base, the, the stand that goes up almost to the sky and the feeling of expectation. It's unbelievable to me that they're out of the Premier League for 16, 17 years. Did you get the scale of that club? Did you understand what it was? Yes and no. I mean, no, I think unless you're in the middle of it, it's impossible yeah. to really understand what the club is. I had, I'd coach players that played for Leeds. You know, I had followed the history of Leeds. I'd seen them playing in Champions League from afar, never mm. live. I had been to Ellen Road, right. you know. But obviously now when you're tasked with the responsibility to lead a club like that, I arrived in Leeds from Germany and I, and I got through customs. And now uh, the customs, they're looking at my passport, okay? And then they're... He's looking at me and he's looking at the passport and then he looks over to like his superior that's behind the window and he kind of gives him a head nod and the guy comes over and he looks at my passport. Now they see my name and they see who I am. And the superior says to me, so you're here to save us. <laughs> and I said, well, I think we're here to save us. I'm not one person coming here to do the job. We're going to do this together. And I almost felt like it was a test. Like if I didn't answer correctly, they weren't going to let me. <laughs> but they accepted the answer and they accepted my passport. And, and I actually told the team this when yeah. I arrived there. And, I, and, and by the way, normally when you see players play on television and teams, they look like men. They look strong. They mm. look like they're, they're in, their, in the right environment yeah. and physically. And, but then when you meet them in person, you see they're still kids. Yeah, absolutely. They're still young men, you know? Mm. It was the opposite when I went to Leeds. Mm. They looked gaunt. They looked tired. They looked defeated. They looked like a group that was going to take a lot to help recover to, to be what I wanted them to be. And actually, the first feeling I had when I, when I first saw them all together and, and up close was that this task is going to be way more difficult than I, than I imagined. And what I re also realized at that moment was that we needed to, to, to create a level of calmness and confidence and belief back in the group. And we needed to rejuvenate their spirits. Why were they in that condition? Listen, I had somebody ask me the other day, was it a mistake that I, uh, that I said on Talk Sport that um, the team was overtrained? I think it was a mistake, mm -hmm. okay? And but by the way, I complimented Marcelo. A mistake in what way? A mistake because it's ill-advisable because it's a standard formulaic response from a new coach coming in to blame an old coach. Why was it a mistake? Well, let me go through a little bit. I compliment I complimented Marcelo a, a thousand times every time publicly because frankly, I loved what the way he played and yeah. and I learned. I have a book about Marcelo passing movements, you know, that I've read and that was given to me as a, a gift by Hans Baca, another coach from Sweden. And I read the book and I, and I studied Marcelo. 
and you know, I, I knew that still publicly that he was a big figure within the club. But honestly, when I said that the, the team was overtrained, it wasn't a pure indictment on Marcelo. I, I honestly kind of thought of it as, okay, this was fact. You know, the team yeah. had been through a lot physically. The the demands were incredibly high and, and there were a lot of injuries. And so this didn't- But it's a direct reflection, Jesse, isn't it? Come on. It is a direct reflection. If a team's overtrained and is gaunt and, and demoralized, then it's a direct reflection of the coaching environment and the environment full well, stop. And, and yes, okay, but also uh, the situation. Right, the fact that the team now felt like they were their backs were against the wall and they were facing relegation, and mm -hmm. so it's not just the coach. Okay, the overtraining, I can see how that, but again, the overtraining of all the things, I, I, I didn't think that that was even up for debate. I thought that this was kind of known, but I then later realized, okay, I didn't mean to incite the public in this yeah. manner, right? And again, I never wanted it to be me against Marcelo. I just wanted to try to take the team forward. But it was always going to be that, wasn't it, to some extent? Yes, of because, course. Because the, the problem for you and the opportunity in equal measure was that the club was in freefall. They were getting battered week in, week out. And the Bielsa bubble was bursting in terms of what was happening on the field. There was still this backdrop for you to walk into, which was this loving for Bielsa. And it must have been quite challenging because there were segments of the crowd that were still singing for Bielsa. So that's a difficult space for you to be in, isn't it? So... One of the things I have is I have a team of people that work with me and around me. Yeah. When I was an and when I'm analyzing what I'm doing next, I have a data team that that I ask, okay, what what is what's the club like? What's the what's the transfers been like? What where is the squad at? And how, you know, how does it fit with what I want? When I went to Leeds, they told me that within three years, the club had an 84% chance of being relegated. Okay. So I knew when I went, and, and by the way, I was at the time considering clubs in other leagues that had chances, big chances of going to Europe. So, but I knew I was going into a lion's den in many ways, okay? I, did I underestimate the, the power of Bielsa in the community? Yes and no, I knew they loved him. I, by the way, I had been to matches a month did the before. Club know, did the club know that they were an 84% chance of getting relegated in the next three yeah, years. Yeah, yes. They knew that data yes, too. Yes, yes. Because obviously Andrea was in the process of wanting to sell the club. Yeah. And I mean, a big but key this, part of that was keeping it in the Premier League. If you look at the bottom clubs in, in the league, they're all, they're going to, statistically, they're going to remain in, in the relegation battle for years to come. And, and you know, the Brightons of the world or the, or even the, the, yeah, the Brentfords, yeah. those are unique. Um, but again, I wasn't, I went because I liked Victor Orta. I liked mm -hmm. the people at the club. I believe that they had, we had symmetry in the ways that we thought about football and the way we thought about leadership in, in the core beliefs we had as people. And by the way, this Being is one of the things I love in football is like Victor Orta has an incredibly big heart. He cares about people. He, mm. when he, when he leads a club, he invests in everything that it's about and he wears it on his sleeve. And, and this is a little bit how I am. I, I care more about the people than I do about winning. So I talked to you before that as a player, all I cared about is winning mm. as a coach. I'm almost 180 degrees. No, I heard that about you, you know, and yeah. then, but then I also believe that if you treat people right and you create a foundation for what you want to be and how you want to do things, how you treat each other, that the byproduct is winning. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's different, but it's the same. Yeah, I'll get it. I'll get it. <laughs> so in the end, 
I didn't want to come. First, when they called me, I I said, please keep Marcelo, please. Like right. he'll he'll get he'll sort it out, get to summer, and then they they got to the point where they felt like they had to make, to a, make change. a change. Yeah. So when you're talking to Leeds, what was it about you and what you said and what your philosophy was and what you were telling them that convinced Leeds that this is the guy that we're going to pin our short-term and immediate future on? I talked about the similarities between Marcelo and myself. Which were what? I, I don't want to overstate it, but, you know, I mean, because obviously Andrea and a lot of people had put a lot of blood, sweat, tears, money into what the club was. But in so many ways at that time, Leeds United was Marcelo Bielsa, right? Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, as it was deteriorating a little bit, there were certain things that they were trying to find ways to recover how to pick up the pieces for, and where to go next, which I think is a normal, rational process. So I talked about things that were similar about that, how we demand uh, the kinds of running that we demand from our teams, the kinds of commitment that we demand from our teams, some of the tactical similarities and behaviors and players that are similar. And then I talked about things that are different, like my training methods and and where I was achieving high levels of, of physical output, but also a healthy team. And and then the things that were hurting them tactically, I talked about how the things that I do are different and how I would adjust so that we wouldn't be giving up as many goals as, as they were currently. And one of the things Marcelo does really well with his teams is creates open space and combinations that, that can lead to exploiting a team. But what that also does is expose yourself defensively Pretty because sure, your yeah. team is wide yeah. open. And so I talked about ways to mitigate that and how my playing style would be a beneficial in those ways. So, you know, it was, and then, and then I talked about who I am as a person and, and what the similarities and different, and I didn't know Marcelo, but just from afar, how I tried to do things and how I, I felt that that would help the team at that moment. So, you know, and again, I think in the end, uh, Victor had probably been tracking three or four coaches, uh, thinking about who was going to be the successor to Marcelo. And he was always very respectful saying, you know, we've gotten so much, Marcelo's changed the club and developed mm -hmm. the club, but we all know that this can't go on forever. Mm -hmm. And, and again, I think it, it, it unfortunately, um, uh, happened quicker than any of them wanted it to happen. So that's, that's the reason why. Yeah. You come in. I mean, let me ask you though. When Tell you me. when when I when I say these things, what what is it? I mean, if you're if you're now in their position and you're trying to think of a succession plan, yeah, right. How what are your processes? Where I mean, well, they they're all embracing, aren't they? They're looking at the immediate problem, which is do you do I, can I get somebody in to fix the immediate problem? And are they are they capable of then moving the immediate problem onto the evolution, which is not to have problems anymore and to build more stability. And I don't mean stability for stability's sake. I mean a platform that gives us the substance to be able to build from. Yeah. Sustainability. Yeah. So I'd be looking at someone that can uh, illustrate the challenges that I've got now and overcome them and then evolve into the next level. And then we see where that takes us and we're all realistic about what that looks like because that involves um, a commitment from the owners of the club, in this instance, if it were me, about how far I'm prepared to push the envelope based upon what my expectations are. So if I say to you, I want to win the Premier League, but I'm going to give you $20 million or sterling, you're going to go, don't be fucking ridiculous. But if I turn around and say to you, listen, I want to build a team that's capable of 
winning the Premier League and I expect to have to spend £200 million a year wisely, economically, and with the best views in mind. I want my youth development policy to reflect every aspect of what a football club should look like. I want the culture of every window that someone looks at my football club through to be the right way of looking from my youth setup through to my uh, first team, through to my commercial operation, through to my recruitment policies, through to my technology, technological outlook, through to my uh, to my data-driven perspectives, to, to, to my medical. I want someone that has the ability to have that thought process, but primarily I want them to be able to convince me that they're my solution. Yeah, I, I, don't it, need, I don't need more problems. I've got plenty. No, of course. And and I mean, the things that you're covering, you know, I think that fans and people think that in the modern day and age, that a manager comes into a club and he dictates everything. And I don't think no, that's, that's the not, way it should go. No, not anymore, I think no. a manager is tasked with coaching the first team. And of course, you have to relate well with all of the I think the it different... should be a Venn diagram. I think he should be able to have a visibility of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like managers to look at, the, to see the academy. I've got an academy director, but I like there to be a straight line. I, I want the academy to be a factory for the first team. Yes, of course. I don't want it to be a school there for jugglers. There needs to be a thread. And this is, yeah. listen, if you say, again, with the Germans and Red Bull, this is what they they do incredibly well. There's almost like, there's no one who works for the company who doesn't understand what the identity of what the club and the company is. And now there's clarity in terms of how to execute what the plan is and what their role is within the plan. And this is the this is the beauty of the German machine. And this is what I loved. And, and quite honestly, I, I think that English football can do more to create more structure in their clubs so that there's consistency with what happens across all levels of, of, of a club at any time. And this again, if you if I were to go to my different experiences at different places, in Germany, they do this much better than they do this in England. And it's a little bit more of what the Why culture is. Because I think that that's what the culture is. This is what they value. They value less the fight and the and the and the emotion of what and and this is any job not just football they value what is my job and and what am i going to be judged on in terms of what success is in my particular role in anything that they do in society and so that i think and i i think english clubs have made progress and certainly the best clubs in england this is a big part of what they do well and what makes them successful but for me from what i've seen i think that based on what happens in germany that can be better here I mean, obviously, you keep them up, right? You, you twelve games, fifteen points. It's a respectable return, isn't it? I mean, if you get twelve games, if you were to do that all season, you'd be mid-table, right, on a pro-rata basis. So you must go into the summer with, okay, I'm in the Premier League now. This is a different league, different set of dynamics, and I'm beginning to find my feet in it. I've got fifteen points out of twelve games. Okay, Rafinha gets sold, doesn't he, to Barcelona, which would have been a blow, but you get. That's a fair amount of money to spend on players. And Calvin. And Calvin. And Calvin Phillips as yeah. well. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Um, but you get a fair amount of money to spend on players. There would have been an expectation, and I think there was an expectation to kick on. And you start all right, start the season quite brightly. But, yeah. So what happens? You know, we I think we caught teams a little bit by surprise in the beginning. And we had a good preseason and the team was gelling together. Then we had a couple of, of matches that we should have, frankly, won. Um and, and then in a series in a row where we didn't get the results that I thought we should have, you know, there's there's Everton in there, there's Arsenal at home in there, there's a few matches you where- You beat Liverpool, right? Yeah, yeah. That was after though. This yeah. was after, Liver, that Liverpool match was like do or die for us mm -hmm. because all of a sudden things were moving along in a way where we couldn't get the points that we frankly should have gotten. 
And now we had to go to Liverpool and almost had to get a result, which is an absurd proposition in itself. Mm. Um, you know, so obviously we were aware of the fact that we had a good process going and that that we we were in many ways achieving certain things that we wanted to within matches and and but, I, I was hard but you to, were losing and I, yes. I remember i remember hearing this from yes. you and i remember thinking i'm not sure about this fella because he's describing a set of circumstances that are that are great in principle but it's like a typical football manager dynamic which is you know we're in these games that we're not getting the results and the outcomes which is great but after 38 games, you sell that story and you're relegated. It makes no difference. Of course. And I felt that some of that was coming out of your mouth. Well, I, thought, I, I almost felt like I was watching one game whilst you were describing another. Oh, that's that's not accurate, Simon. I mean, but, but that's what, how I, I what I'm saying, we're controlling a match and we're on top of a game and we're creating chances and we're not getting the results when an opponent isn't finding the game the way we are. Yeah, okay. In the end, you have to score goals and you have to win matches and you can't make mistakes. Mm. But the the way that the the outcomes of the way the game would work out, sometimes I'd walk away from the game and go, how in the world did we not get points in that, right? And obviously when that's a trend, when that's a trend, then more questions arise. Yeah. It's, it's natural. So that's my point. But I but what I I'm tasked with now doing the job of keeping the ship the ship steady, making sure that we still understand what we control and what we're good at and how we need to improve and what we can do within games. And I can't sit there and go, yeah, uh, these players don't score enough goals. These players make too many mistakes in the back because that's not the way I believe leadership works. Right. Right. And of course we can be. We can be honest and and straightforward with with people in private situations. How do you mean that? I mean, making people accountable, constructively accountable, as management, being able to deliver criticism in the same way you deliver praise, isn't that a form of leadership? Isn't that a form of character yes. building? But I think a form of leadership is not doing that publicly. Oh, of course not. Yes. No, so, uh, no, not of course, it into the media. inside the team and individually, yeah we, yeah, we had to demand more out of the guys, right? And and then there was a moment publicly where before the Liverpool game, I came out and said, I'm tired of losing, mm -hmm. right? I said, I'm- uh, No, I remember it. And right? I remember, I mean, it sounded like anything given Sunday, but I remember listening to it and thinking, because I was quite critical with you about a couple of things, and I'll read you some quotes I said about you at the time, and you can put me in my place if you want to. Um, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I remember thinking, yeah, I think that's a call to action. I think he should be fed up with losing games that yeah. he doesn't think he should be entitled to lose. Yeah. And I, I think certain sections of the media sort of parodied it a little bit and took it like, well, let's start stating the bleeding obvious. Yeah, who's, well. who's, who's, who's happy with losing? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course. I mean, I get categorized for being American. I, but I one thing I do strive to be is authentic. Yeah. And when I feel certain ways, and that's both in leadership and in moments of crisis and in moments of success, I try to be who I am, which is often about a group of people. That's what I care about. That's what I love football because I love being part of a team. Sure. Right. And so in the end. You're the leader of that team, though. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and 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 I'm tasked with doing that in the way that I believe is most effective for that group of people and and authentic to me. You pick the team up at 16th, you leave them 17th. Do you think you deserve the sack? Well, to say 16th is if you went points per game they were lower than that, right? Mm -hmm. They had uh, they had games in hand and but 
if you just go by the table, if you would ask me when I was fired, I was fired at 17th. Actually, if you go by match day 20, we were 13th. Mm-hmm. And then we lost match day 20th. Most teams played match day 20 the week before and they won. So they elevated themselves above us after that. But on match day 20, if we, we had a game in hand, on match day 20, when I was sacked, we were actually 13th place. <laughs> you took, I think my memory is right. You took 15 points out of 12 games in season one. Yes. Right? But you've taken 18, 15 out of 20. 18 out of 20. I thought it was 15. 18. You'll know better than I. Right? But it, I, that is, that's going to get you relegated. Yes and no. That's okay. going to get you relegated. Expected goals, we were 28 points. Okay. And by most... But listen, come let on, me, let me, that's, Simon, that's, let me that's get, let data me, rubbish. okay, let me, expected goals, come on. Well, let me, let me, let me make my, let me respond to that. I understand. Listen, I'm not proud of 18 of 20. That yeah. is, for me, you're right. That's not good enough. We should have won more. And if we would have won two games more, we would, then probably I'm not here doing this interview and I'm mm-hmm. still coach of yeah, Leeds United. Yeah. Okay. So I understand that results matter, but let's look at the situation before I came. Okay. The club was losing bad. Sure. Six nil, seven, five nil. Yeah, it was a shit fest. Right. Getting and most and fours goals and fives, given yeah. up in, in one month in the history of the Premier League. Yeah, the wheels would come off. And then I came in, right? And yeah, it was difficult times, yeah. but I stabilized, really stabilized the environment, stabilized the performances. Yeah. We weren't losing by multiple goals. We were in matches every game. And ultimately it gave us a chance to stay in the league, which for me was an incredible achievement at that time. But you then get given... A reasonable amount of money. You're given money in 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 August or in in the August window, and you're given some more in January. You're getting about 130 million quid. Um, and yet, I know you've lost Calvin Phillips, and I know you've lost Rafinha, but you've brought in other players, and you've brought in a lot of players that, to my mind, looking at them now, they're all players that have been in and around you somewhere else or played for clubs that you've been involved with, and there've been a lot of Americans in there. And there isn't this great big history, with due respect, Clint Dempsey maybe, that made a name for himself. Brian McBride, Carlos Pogadam, Fulham did a great job with yeah, some of these guys. I mean, that's, we can name them on the fingers of one hand. Yeah. So we're not talking about a litany of American players that have landed in English football that have been successful, but you're pinning your colours to this mark. And again, it's not, it, please, it's not just me. We're like, as a group. Putting, but you're the ultimate decision but, maker. Yeah. Well, on no, that I'm not actually. Okay. So you're getting players that you didn't want. <laughs> no, but we were working together to right. get these players. So what I'm And saying, I would say to you also, Leeds, there were two clubs in the summer that made money on transfers. Man City and Leeds United. Sure. Right. What's that to do with the price of cheese? Yeah, but I'm just You'll saying. lose money at the end if you get relegated. Uh, yeah, I yeah. understand. But yeah. I'm just, you know, I, we made some investments. I'm, and I yeah. and I like the players. But don't get me wrong. I really like the players but, that we brought in. Include but, Luis Sinistera in there. Include yeah. Mark Roca. Include, you know, don't just make it seem like we only brought in American players. No, no, players. I'm asking you. Because but I'm the, just telling you, this is a process of any club is trying to now determine what players fit with what we're trying to achieve moving forward. Granted, the genesis of the question was about, do you think you were unfairly sacked? And it's grown legs from there because I'm looking at different mot- different opportunities to have avoided being put in that position because you've put yourself in that position where the question's getting asked. I, I thought it was 15 points. You're saying it's 18 points. I'm going to bow to your knowledge because it's live and current to your mind rather than me researching it. After 20 games, that's going to put you in a difficult position where you've made the yes. chairman nervous. You know that the chairman has got He's got a fucking thing at the end of this season where he wants to keep this team in the division because he's about to sell out. 
right? And so he's been forced into a decision. And I'm looking at it going, did you have enough support around you? And did you make the right decisions? Because I don't see the players that you signed, and I hope you can contradict me, um, really pulling up trees. And then I see American players being brought in with no problem whatsoever. And all of those ingredients, I feel, lead you to a very difficult space and a place. So I'm, I, I think you did deserve to get sacked. I think you put yourself in a difficult position. And, and I'm trying to get from you whether that's a really unfair comment from me or it has some facets of correctness about it, or you just go, right. listen, listen, son, hold yeah. on a second here. Let me walk you down that route and tell you why you've got it wrong. I don't believe I should have been sacked because, if again, if you look at the metrics, at the time we were trending in the right direction, absolutely trending in the right direction. And when I left, shortly after I left, it fell off a cliff and the chaos ensued again. So let me just say, in my 11 months there, did we achieve as much as I wanted to? No. Seven wins, Jesse. 21% win record. Yeah, of course. That's going to get anybody. Of course. It's that's going to get anybody canned. Gonna, of course. It's going to yeah. put things under stress. So what are you talking stress. about trending then? But I'm talking about when you look at the, both the eye test, by the metrics, by everything that we were doing to try to put the team back on track to what we wanted to become, we were moving in the right direction. We did good work and we were in a good place. And it's a shame for me. And my heart was broken and it was a shame. At the end, I don't blame Andrea or no, anybody because I understand. It wasn't personal. It was yes, business. Yes, yeah. I understand. Yeah. I understand that because we didn't get the results that I think we should have gotten, it put everything in jeopardy. You were linked to other jobs instantaneously, being Southampton and Leicester. I talked to Martin Simmons the other day, who I know very well, and I know Great that he guy. was. Yeah, he yeah, he speaks very well of you, and he was impressed with you, and felt that you were a fit. I think a lot to do with the RB model and the way that they wanted to go back from what Nathan Jones had turned them into, more towards what Hassan Hoodle had them doing at one particular time, mm -hmm. which was a, the pressing game that people talk about. He wanted you. So why didn't that happen? I was in Southampton. I was ready to go. Yeah. I was ready to go to work the next day. And then the the negotiation got delayed a, a couple of days and what they had said is that they needed to get aligned from a board perspective which uh, that sometimes can happen and I, I dealt with that in Leeds a little bit with the 49ers and different time zones and continents and in that time that they delayed what i saw was a lack of vision at the of what was what the future was going to be and that ultimately scared me away i will also be honest I, like I said, I was heartbroken from leaving Leeds and, and I was still, I, I like to work, you know, I like to be mm -hmm. with a team and I liked the idea of Southampton and that some of the lads on the team, James Ward-Prowse and, yeah, good place. and, and but also seem like incredible characters, yeah. right? So like the thought about working with that team got me excited. I knew that it was another challenge that our backs were going to be against the wall, but I, I also just emotionally from Leeds was still in a very unstable, I think best way to describe situation because the emotion, I, and by the way, the second match was back at Ellen Road. All right. And so, and I, the thought of going back, so you said the thought of going back to the team that I love and that I helped build and in at a stadium that was magical Right, it, it it just I it didn't sit well with me at the time. No fear factor about potentially being associated with two sides that might get relegated for no, you and your no, reputation. No, it was more. I listen. 
again, I did my data team did research on Southampton. I was ready to go. I was ready yeah. to sign on the dotted line two days before I said no. And I knew that they had a 95% chance of being relegated at that time. You know, so it wasn't about that. It was about, you know, they, they, and they also only offered me a three month contract and I still agreed. I said, mm -hmm. okay, no problem. Because I believe that once I get moving and I get part of what we're developing, People that you're going to like me yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're going to want me, you know? Yeah. But then what I realized is I, I, I could just see that there were different movements within the club that weren't totally aligned. And that, that was a red flag for me. Why are you on LinkedIn as a manager? <laughs> Uh, it's gonna I hired a, I hired a PR team, right. and they felt strongly that I needed to do need this. to get some new PR. And it was a mistake. That was a mistake. Mm. That was a mistake. But I mean, in America, LinkedIn's not just a job searching company. It's more of a network. Social connectivity. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in theory, it made sense, but it, the, the application of it for what I was doing was terrible. It's terrible. I don't, am I still on it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, Americans in English football. We've had two, and neither one of them have been particularly successful, whether you like that analysis or not, which is you and Bob Bradley. I would make the argument, and I'll say it and, and, and risk your wrath, that both of you got jobs because there was American ownership models in place. I don't see myself in a space of looking at American managers and going, yeah, I think you've got the wherewithal that understands the culture of this country and understands the league itself and the basic knowledge of English football to give me the surety that you're going to give me outcomes. Now, that might be a blind spot on my part, and I'm happy to be corrected, but the tragedy of it is, is that we've got two guys in you and Bradley that have been put in situ because American influences have been involved in those businesses, and it might be coincidence, it might be convenient for my argument that I make this point, and yet both of them have not been ultimately successful. Why do you think that is? So first, I you're aggrieved about the way you're aggrieved about the way Bob Bradley was treated, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, this was not fair. Why? He conceded 28 goals in 11 games. Yeah, he got, he won two it, games. It, they were getting battered. Yeah, but they were getting battered before he came, right? And it's, they were getting battered worse. So after. no, they weren't. When and he was they, there, they were. I mean, they, actually, if you look at it, they trended slightly better. Not well, not good enough. But before I took the job at Leeds. I never had met anyone from the 49ers. They were not the catalyst for me being, it was Victor Orta. Right. Victor Orta, right? And so you, and you can credit him or blame him no, 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 no. for that, okay? No. But so so I think, draw. and by the way, if you want to talk about American ownership, then you could say that, I mean, how many clubs now in, I'm, in, well, the, I'm ask you about that. in the Premier League I'm have ask you about that. some version of American I'm ownership? I'm going to ask you about that, yeah. So... Listen, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not going to victimize myself. I'm not going to self-flagellate. Yeah. All I'm going to say is, you know, I worked hard to get to where I am at. Right. And I, I coached in five countries. I've mm -hmm. learned multiple languages. I've, uh, I went, I've gone multiple times from being, or twice from being an assistant to a head, to an assistant, to a head. Like for me, it's not about the ego and it's not about trying to, the ambition to be the greatest coach in American history or the best American Premier League coach. My, my ambition is to create a path for myself yeah. that honors who I am and what I want to become and staying true and authentic to that at the highest level. And, the opportunity to do it at Leeds seemed like it was the right fit. So from here, where do we go? Yeah, of course, that's that's my goal now is to find a place to work that I really love again. Because the formulaic reaction would be, I suppose, 
and you brought it up, <laughs> the Ted Lasso image that you know that, that kind of haunts an American manager coming into the country, and you addressed that earlier. Do you think that was a good thing to do? Yeah, I think I had to. Well, it was the elephant in the room. Just get it out and say <laughs> it doesn't bother me. And, you know, I realized that I obviously knew thing about things about English culture and English football and, and leads you, but you don't know until you're in the middle of it, right? And and until you really are experiencing it. This is the same as being in Germany or Austria or Canada or wherever I've been. It's like once you're immersed fully in a culture is when you really understand what yeah. the people are about. And then you can adapt and learn and grow and, and figure out how you want to be part of that, right? So- you know, I mean, it's always interests me the that people love Roy Keane so much in his commentary, and well, and because I think Roy can be kind of an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> a pantomime villain at times. <laughs> yes. yeah. And but people like there's something in English culture about that sort of negative, edgy kind of cutting, like that, like that's the truth, you know. Yeah. And so he says it like it is. I will tell you, yeah. I, this is and this is an American moniker. Our truth is that we believe we can achieve great things. We believe in ourselves. Oh, no, I agree with that. And, and, and when people want to knock us down, that almost drives us more, right? And so when I have positive takes on certain things, that's not me trying to be something different than or trying to be American. No, I, this I, is how I feel. So I, I agree with that. Having lived in America, there was always a thousand reasons why you could do something yeah. in America. In this country, there's a thousand reasons why you can't do it. Yes. So I get that mentality. But it's also sometimes with you guys, there's a shtick. It's a bit snake oil salesman-y. When you're telling somebody something that clearly isn't what it is, I, I agree with you. There's a, the underlying humor in this country is negative. It's other people's expense. No one laughs more than when someone falls over flat on their face. And there's also a culture in this country, in England, of envy. They, 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 they Rather than admire That's people. That's sad. I think it's sad. And I think it's- And it's the, pathetic. I, I agree. I don't like it. <laughs> it is. But, but I don't necessarily agree with you that Roy Keane's approach is to deride people. I think the reasons why people like Roy Keane, and to some extent, the media stuff that I do, is because it's straight down the barrel. And it's authentic. Well, it's and, his and, version and it, and it of might that. Be mis yeah, it it's might be misguided. Version. But what it is, isn't, is it isn't straight, it isn't treading a politically correct line. It isn't trying to make a popular opinion. It's calling it as you're seeing it. Again, and if you can stand as the it way up, he sees it. And I said, well, of course, it's, everything's how we well, see things. Well, of course, things. but There's that's no, what I'm saying. Yeah, that's yeah, my point. Yeah. Like, I've never been called a snake oil salesman. Never. Never. In fact, if you went to Germany and Austria, they say, wow, he's a humble guy and he's straightforward and he's open. They would, they'd use the word open a lot because they're more close. Well, the reason why I say that is because if something isn't what it is, and you're convincing people that it's going to get to that point and that people must come on this journey with you, there's an element of subscription about that. And there's an element about of understanding that I'm going to buy this person's vision. So what you're saying is... because that's any, sometimes you that's can, any some, walk of life with any leadership at anywhere. Yeah, but we're not, there's, I'm not, there's an I'm, element of convincing. That's I'm not a worried about word. it. I'm talking about in football. I, of course, in politics, in yeah, every aspect of life. Yeah, even in football, of course. Yeah, of course it is. But that's why that's why I described it as snake oil salesman, because I felt, and I go back to my point with you earlier on, you said, that's not fair. I watched you describe games, and don't ask me to be specific about the games, but I remember listening to you thinking, this team doesn't defend well, it doesn't attack well, and I'm being told that this team is unlucky for losing these games. And I'm listening to it with you now, saying that we didn't get what we got from these games, we didn't get what we deserve. And I'm a firm believer in life, because I'm a realist, right? You get what you fucking deserve. 
That's how it works. Well, I mean, there's, of course, I'm a realist too. Yeah. Right. But my job is trying to impact an, an environment yeah, to try I get that to too. become and to what I want it to yeah, be. I get that too. And there's a process involved yeah. in that. And if the process is not going the way you want, you have to then always be searching for solutions. Yeah, I agree. And you that. have to be providing optimism for how we're going to get there. Okay. So, it's a balance, well, okay, isn't it? So, so it's we, a balance so we between play reality. We play Arsenal at home. Yeah. Okay. We miss a penalty. We miss five unbelievably easy chances that you and I, if we're on the pitch, could have finished. And the game should end up 4-5-1. <laughs> so what do I do? Uh, am I supposed to go and say, well, it wasn't good enough because we didn't win. And if those players would have scored, then we would have won the match. And then we would be here and we'd have three more points and we... That's for me, that is not leadership. Those are that's excuses and blame, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I will never be about that. Never, never. I never have ever blamed the, but like, even at one point, there was something like I was blaming the player, parent, the, play, the players. Yeah. I was never blaming the players. Yeah, and I was, I was that. always, my job was always tasked with providing them yeah. with the how and why and where and what so that we could achieve our goals. You were talking to the British media about the divisiveness of the British media and the misreputation. I lived in America. The fucking American media is pretty divisive as well. So you were making- Not even close. You don't think? No. Well, There's a total tabloid culture here. Look how many papers what, the mirror is. You, you don't think there is in the Northeast of America? You don't think no. there's some of the, you No, don't? what you have is a celebrity obsessed culture in America. That's what you have, but you don't have a tabloid obsessed, right? So that's different. Honestly, mm, it is. Okay. There, it's more about, it's kind of like about edgy and negativity and what happened to this person. In America, we're obsessed with what did Jennifer Aniston do? What did Kim Kardashian do yesterday? And it's not, oh, why did she do that? And oh, she doesn't know what she's doing and how does she have that money and why is she wearing that watch it's like oh what are they doing with their lives that's why the kardashians exist it's it's equally absurd <laughs> but it yeah. affects the culture in a different way okay well my my observation at the time was you know that the media in america is a, is as divisive in my experience you say not and i have to bow to your knowledge because it's your country yeah um but i also said that i didn't think you were a great manager in every dressing room there will be people against people. It's the nature of the beast. The object of the aim is to get more people on your side than is against you. Um, and that rather than um, pissing and moaning in the media about what the press were and weren't reporting, win some more games and then you'll have more people yeah, convinced. Of course, of course. And that was my sort of yes. observation on Agre it. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Like, you know, listen... Uh, whether it was Unai Emery or whether even Big well, that was a, that was because I was going to say to you do, do you think do you, do you think that the Lang and, and, and it's interesting you being at Unai Emery because I made a note of it you guys these Americans that have come in here and the resistance that's been felt and you feel that Bob Bradley wasn't treated properly and then there's this argument about some of the terminologies that that Bob Bradley used like we didn't we didn't get a PK or it's a road game that was 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 weaponized against him yeah, yeah. and used against him do you think that was unfair and a characterization because it did happen to Unai Emery? Because yeah, Unai yeah, of Emery course. got the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, well, and look, when Unai yeah. came back, then he had a translator doing interviews. Yeah, because he's wiser. Which, yeah. Well, yeah, of course, but it's also ridiculous, right? But he well, that's tried. That's the nature of the beast, isn't I, it? I get it. You ain't going to change it. He came it, here and he tried to assimilate and adapt and be everything that, that he wanted to become as an English manager or a manager in English football. 
and he was chastised for it, okay? Which I think was also unfair. Like, I'm yeah. not just pointing at Americans. Like, Big Ange, everybody loved him. And then when they started losing, they all say, he says mate too much. And, you know, so there's different things that happen where now when people want to be critical and they have the opportunity to be critical, yeah. they will. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But again, so what's my strategy? So I can either sit there and take it or I can go back at them and go on the offensive, right? And and this is why I brought up Ted Lasso first, mm. right? This is why, Get out and, of there, and by the way, there were certain, it, when I would say this about the, and I would say this sometimes, I'm not talking all of British media, I'm saying some of British media, and there was A fair some- proportion of it. <laughs> there were some people in that side, that room that I would look at directly and imp implicate with my eyes directly because I wanted them to know. And I wanted them to know that I wasn't going to stand for mm. it. Now, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Winning solves everything. Yeah. Right? Because then they don't have as much freedom to attack me. They don't they don't have as much reason. You know, there's not as much demand in the public for people to hear that. So I get it. I, I get all of it. I'm a realist too, mm. my man. So <laughs> winning is cures everything yeah. in sport. You um your background and your experiences, RB, one of them, and you, I, I know why you're you're even more passionate probably about Bob Bradley than in terms of his treatment because of your relationship with him and your experiences with him. You know the man. Of course. Right? You had, obviously, another big influence in your life, um, Ralph Raniak. I looked at Ralph years and years ago, uh, and I, we were a championship side at the time, and I didn't think he was the right fit for us. I didn't think that that was the right for my football club, and it probably wasn't because we got promoted with someone else. What did you take from him? And, and were you surprised, because I was surprised, that the time at United was a bit of a car crash? So before I even, you know, you're, Bob and Ralph are my two Biggest major influences. influences. Yeah. But we, I'm very different personally than both, Yeah. right? And that's not, again, it's not an uh, endorsement for me and a knock on no. them or an endorsement for them or a knock. This is just, we're different people. You took positive influence from I mean, you yeah, yeah. and you worked things out yourself, but like we all do. But, and Bob's was a lot about the way he runs an environment and the way, uh, football, obviously a big part of that. And Ralph's was so much about the detail of the way he thinks about football. I was interviewing with the New York Red Bulls. He came and he was evaluating the entire environment. They had a, a different coach there. Ralph came with Gerard Houllier, mm -hmm. and and they were going. They spoke with the current coach. They, Thierry Henry was in his last year at New York Red Bulls. Mm -hmm. He was looking at the way they trained. He was looking at the overall environment. And when Ralph went, he didn't speak English with anybody. And and I was told after the interview by someone said to me inside the organization, "Well, Ralph doesn't speak English." Then I went to my interview. And the interview was almost directly with Gerard, Gerard Houllier. And Gerard Houllier, and I and I had heard the name Ralph Rangnick, but Gerard Houllier was like, as a, as a person, someone that I looked up to yeah. and admired from afar for yeah. years. And Gerard and I were having a good dialogue. And he was asking me football questions and, and Ralph hadn't said anything. And about after an hour, all of a sudden, Ralph sparked up. And he said, why don't you counterpress every single moment? And, and, and I was almost taken aback because he didn't, he hadn't said anything. I said, well, this is, and then he started challenging me. And then we started having a conversation back and forth, which I interpreted as a little bit abrasive. Right. And 
when I brought this up to Ralph later in time, he said, I didn't think it was abrasive at all. I thought it was a normal football conversation, mm. which, which is also great, right? Mm. And, and at the end of the conversation, though, I thought, man, I'm not sure I'm getting that job. <laughs> and then I got a call about a half hour later and, and from, the, from the president of the New York Red Bulls, and they said, he loved you. They loved you. And Ralph was like my professor. You know, this was almost the relationship I had with him. It's like nothing was ever good enough, always trying to learn more, eager to get his approval, but also old enough to know that it didn't matter, but that I still wanted to learn from him and 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 wanted to show him that that I I understood. You know, and we to be honest, our relationship is good, but not incredibly close. You surprised how much he struggled at United. I think he knew he was going into the Lions den. But he couldn't, I think for him, he couldn't turn down the opportunity to coach. Manchester United. He he didn't play classic Ralph Rangnick football. That was one thing that I was a little bit surprised of, but I think he he felt early on that it that it wasn't going to be that easy with that group of players to play the kind of football that he wanted. What I had heard from Ralph and others that were there at the time is that the cohesion in the club was next to zero. Mm. That their communication with the scouting departments and the sporting departments and the the directors and 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 that made them feel like probably there wasn't much of a future for them there mm-hmm. which maybe that was the case but again with any club and especially the best that this idea of the pressure from within for everyone to understand exactly what the identity is and the commitment to stay disciplined to to do that every day is usually what dictates how good they can become. And to understand their responsibility. Yes, Absolutely. and 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 from afar and from what I've heard, that part has been lost at Menu. Mm. Did you want the US job? Yes and no, I would say. Um, What's the no part? The no part was not wanting to leave Europe. Okay, but obviously the thought of representing your team at a home World Cup mm-hmm. was it's something. A big deal. Yeah, yeah, it was something that yeah. I was thinking about as well. Mm. So. You know, yeah. Are you surprised by the amount of American owners we've now got in English football? I mean, I remember talking to Bob Kraft years ago mm-hmm. um, because I took the team out to play the Revolution. I think Stevie Nichol was managing the team. Okay. And I said to him, what do you think about English football? Fuck that. I'm not going to buy it in a league that I can't guarantee the revenue. Yeah, yeah. So are you surprised about... Well, I think that, you know, most American owners are owners of bigger companies yeah. where they have massive capital yeah. and they're trying to think of what is a way to gain massive wealth quickly. <laughs> mm. And some of them invest longer, but some of them think, of course, you're right. The 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 downside of an investment in, in any European football club is if they get rele- relegated, they immediately mm. lose massive amounts of wealth. However, if they maintain their club even yeah, the even runs. at operating yeah. costs, yeah. like it's almost exponential over the last twenty years. How much Premier League clubs have grown in value? Do you think it's a good thing for the Premier League football? Or do you just think it's globalization? It is what it is. They had some money. It is. I mean, let, let's start with MLS. MLS is almost socialist yeah. in the way that it's run. Yeah, it is. And yeah. where everything is about being fair and money yeah. being equal, yeah. which is anti-American. Yeah. <laughs> or at least yeah. anti-capitalist. Okay, let's say let's just say that. Um, and then a lot of European football is run like capitalist markets, right? Mm-hmm. And they try to institute f- fair play rules and everything else, yeah. right? But we all know that there are certain clubs that are always going to be the haves and there are certain clubs that are always going to be the have-nots. 
again, Amer- American owners see it as an opportunity, as a as where the upside can be very big, but the downside can also be very big. So it is a risky inv- investment. What you lose with American investment is you lose tradition. Yep. Right? And you lose- oh, you'll, you'll lose that with Middle East investment as well, to be honest. Yeah. Well, so you can lose this. But what you can gain- are, are proper business practices, yeah. right? And and better infrastructure, mm-hmm. and 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 then a, a better opportunity for a working environment to be at a high Jeez, level. Jeez, I told that to Man United fans. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that to Man United fans. But there's there's okay for 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 Man United. There's a there's an awful lot of good examples of mm. of, of American owners that have mm. helped really, I think, create an infrastructure and a stability. When you look at this 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 twenty six World Cup coming up, I mean, I thought the American team were very good um, in the last World Cup. I thought they they were very good against the English. Um, what's your expectation? Where do you think they can go? What do you think they can yeah, do? Yeah, I think we have big aspirations. But I, you know, like I came out publicly recently because I've been doing a little bit more media work. Yeah, and I said that they need a significant win. Most people would reference the game against England as their crowning achievement, and it was a nil-nil draw, yeah. right? So they just needed someone to score goals in that game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they they've they've grown, they've gotten better, they have players playing at a high level. Yeah. But our expectations have grown, and I think now we need to see the results reflect that. So, um, what can happen at the World Cup? It's really too early to see. I think the Copa America will dictate a lot what our expectations will be prior to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I mean, the main reason why you got the World Cup is because Trump made such commitments to FIFA about the revenues that would be generated. But what do you think it will have as a knock-on effect? A successful American team, obviously, we've seen yeah. the women's team, and we but, see some of the arguments that go on there about equal pay and so on and so forth. And and there's lots of arguments, and I think it's raging in both America and in the in the UK about the arguments about equality in sport. I don't just mean economically, but the idea that we must have at some point a woman manager managing in men's football. I'm happy for that to be the case as long as it's merit-based. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen recently in the UK this campaign suggesting that Serena Wegman would be the next England men's manager, which I think is ridiculous because the games are different. There's a fundamental difference between the women's game and the men's game in physicality, in speed, in force. Well, and, and I think in interest. In interest. An interest, yeah. I mean, that's, if you ask me what should dictate all these decisions about, of course, I, I want women to always be equal and treated equal. Yeah. And but if they want to be treated equal, then the main question is, okay, what's the revenue in the sport? Yeah. And then what? And then how does the the payment and, and earnings reflect that? And so that's. But also the like for like when we talk about managers, we've got Emma Hayes going over from here to the U, to the US, and this argument rages. And everybody's excited, by the way, by that. Great, fantastic, and yeah. good luck to her. She's done very yeah. well. I think Emma Hayes has a chance to be really. I'm successful. sure she does. It'll, yeah. it'll translate because yeah. I think she's a good communicator. But I also think that when you're suggesting that women can go into men's football at this stage, it's not just about the ability to coach. Because if you've been on coaching courses, you can coach to a certain level. You can put on certain sessions. Walk inside a 70,000 all-seater stadium with a feral atmosphere, with the media scrutinizing every aspect of your life, with multi-millionaire players in the dressing room that have the propensity to tell you what they think. I think that's a massive sea change and a massive level of expectation for, to think women can do that at this stage. I'm not averse to it. All I want in sport is meritocracy to be at the center of it. And the reasons why I want... It usually is. Sometimes, yeah, I like to think it is, but is. there is a, there is a culture in. Both I mean, our like countries. Your, your first question that you asked me is, did I earn to come to the Premier League? And that, and yeah. the, the implication is that I didn't. No, it wasn't. It was to see what your response was. Okay. 
Yeah, but to ask somebody the question that's slightly loaded to see what their response is. Okay. I didn't have a view on it. Okay. Mine was. Were you I, satisfied with my answer? It, it's not for me to be satisfied. <laughs> Ultimately, it's for, it's for you to be comfortable with how you've answered. I was ambivalent. I, I think it's a slightly tricky question. And, and and when I used to interview managers, and I'm going to ask you the final question in a second about what is the next thing for you. Yeah. But I used to, when I remember interviewing Steve Bruce, my job was not to get somebody sitting in front of me and give me their fucking interview face. Yeah. I wanted somebody to tell me what they really were all about. I wanted somebody that would tell me how they're going to react in adversity when we got on, when we didn't get on. And in order to do that, I had to ask brutal questions to get them away from their comfort zone, to yeah. get them away from their programmed responses and yeah, to yeah. get them into the natural, real person. I, I think actually, if you really want to break down how to be successful in this business, it's about how you handle adversity. Everybody's a good Always. coach. Everybody's a good coach when they're winning. When, when they're winning yeah, absolutely. Right? It's all about how you handle things when it's not easy. And and that's what and that's, separates and people. And relationships are a big part of yeah. that. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. When you um when you go back in and you get an opportunity and it comes your way, what will be for you the non-negotiables? So I love this term non-negotiable. It's a very English term. And my only non-negotiable is not using the word non-negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> what will be your okay? What will be your Listen, ideal I, scenario? Are, I, honestly, like I believe in you have to have rules and discipline, but there's also always a little bit of room where, you know, you have to understand how to apply the rules and discipline at all moments. And so, in the end, you ask me what what are my non-negotiables? Yeah, are about finding selfless people that care about each other and about how to run a club and treat each other the right way and by doing it through a football process so that we can have success together. Not of not just about me, not just about them, not just about one player, two players, about the entire club and how we as the custodians of that club can help run it in a way that makes sense where we have similar ideals for how to treat people, how to work every day and how to create success. That's what I'm looking for. Jesse Marsh. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me in Upfront. Right on, man. Upfront with me, Simon Jordan, is brought to you by William Hill. Future episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 18 plus, please gamble responsibly. <laughs>